For anyone who has played competitive sports or been on a team, and maybe this harkens back a number of decades for some of you, you know that the beginning of the season often requires certain things that you don't like. At least that was the case with me. Whether you're playing volleyball or basketball or football or soccer or name the sport, there are things that your coach asks you to do, requires you to do, that may seem unrelated or in the way of what the team and the sport is all about. I think especially of my time playing soccer as a teenager and what would happen at the beginning of the season. The coach would have us out there running and running and running. We would circle the field many times, endlessly it seemed like to me. We'd run to the, to the edge of the 18 and then half field and the other 18 and the end of the field and all the way back. I'm one of those people who would rather run 10 miles with the ball dribbling or kicking than one mile without. Those of you who love to run, I respect you. I don't envy you. The running at the beginning of the season seemed to me to be a grand waste of time because the whole point was to play the game, wasn't it? The coach knew better. The coach knew that the kind of obstacles, the kind of conditioning, the kind of headwinds that we would feel as team members would actually turn out to be an opportunity for us. It would prepare us to play well in the game. And if we weren't ready, if we had not learned how to withstand and endure that, we wouldn't be very effective when it counted. Today's week number three in our Transcendent Joy series from the book of Philippians, and we're in our second main passage. I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn in them to Philippians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. One of our hosts would be glad to give you one of those. It's on page 950 in those Bibles. For those of you who brought your own, you'll have to find the right page number or look in the table of contents. Philippians is toward the end of the New Testament, toward the end of our Bibles. Philippians chapter 1. This week, we're beginning with verse 12. Last week, we looked at verses 3 to 11, and we saw there that spiritual parents are personally invested in the health and the success of their offspring. And that investment, maybe this reminds you, involves a passion for those children, a partnership with those children, and prayers for those children. And Paul was the great example of this in his proclamation of the gospel as a gospel witness and a church planter in the city of Philippi. And in that regional city, northern Greece, we found a city highly aligned with, loyal to Rome. But there is where Paul proclaimed another Lord. Not Caesar and the Roman Empire, but Jesus and the kingdom of God. And Paul believed that God was at work in them to form them into a community of believers who were able through the power of the Holy Spirit to live holy lives. And that the God who started a good work in them, began a good work in them individually and corporately, would carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul's letter to the Philippians, as we've seen, is marked by certain themes. Joy, unity, suffering, gratitude, gospel. And the themes of joy and suffering and above all the gospel are prominent in our passage today. We're going to see how a laser focus on the gospel and its advance actually enables us to have a godly perspective as we face suffering and persecution and hardship and obstacles in life. 
We'll also see how the gospel allows us to endure even people who are full of envy or ill will toward us. What looks and feels bad might just be what the good Lord ordered for us, for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Or as Paul wrote elsewhere, Romans chapter 8, verse 28, for we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. We'll see something about that today. Philippians chapter 1, I'd invite you to stand once you have that in your copy of the scriptures. I'm going to begin reading in verse 12 down to verse 26, our passage today. I'm reading from the New International Version. The Bible says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Thanks. You may be seated. Thanks for honoring God's word in that way. Hope you got a copy of the worship program on your way in, or you can look there, gracepolaris.org slash program, to follow along two main points in this passage. The first one, our difficult realities in life can result in remarkable gospel progress. Our difficult realities. Paul begins this part of his letter with a status report on his life. The, the Philippians knew of Paul's gospel pursuits, and... They had also heard of his imprisonment in the world capital city of Rome. And so Paul wrote to them to assure them of his well-being, to update them on his perspective on that, and to encourage them not to lose heart, but to be uh, full of confidence in the Lord. These were Paul's spiritual children, and he was concerned about what they knew about him. And he begins with a, what has happened to me, namely that he was in prison. But instead of wallowing in that predicament and the suffering that he was encountering, 
Paul views his experience in a remarkable, unexpected light. He tells the Philippians that what is there, what you have seen or heard about, is actually not there. It might look like an obstacle. It might walk like an obstacle. It might quack like an obstacle. But it's not actually an obstacle. What has happened to me, Paul writes, is far from a disaster. It has actually served to advance the gospel. This is the great reversal that Paul describes to them. What you see isn't what you get. For Paul, what is an obstacle has become an opportunity. And the gospel is on the advance. We might read some of this from Paul, knowing a little bit of his circumstances, as the Philippians did, and be skeptical, full of disbelief. We might say to ourselves, come on, Paul. You're in prison. Admit it, life stinks. You've been wrongly accused. You've been terribly mistreated. You are stuck in life in prison. And that's a travesty. Don't put lipstick on the pig and call it beautiful, Paul. Your life has come crashing into a brick wall. And there's no way to call what is unmistakably bad good. But that's exactly what Paul does. No, Paul doesn't deny the injustice of his imprisonment. He doesn't say that he enjoys mistreatment. Neither must we. He doesn't say that he prefers suffering. Neither must we. What he does say is this. What you don't see is the big picture. And the big picture is beautiful. The gospel advances. Warren Wiersbe says, Paul did not find his joy in ideal circumstances. No, no. He found his joy in winning others to Christ. It's the bigger picture that matters, Paul writes to the Philippians and says to us. Consider the analogy of a football game, a football player. There are, there are a lot of experiences for a football player that are highly unpleasant. Think about it. You have to haul around for hours on end weighty, uncomfortable gear. You spend most of your time as a football player on the sideline, and the time on the field is mostly standing around. When you do well, they cheer. When you do poorly, they boo. Every move you make will be on videotape. And if your team is good enough, then thousands of people will review at least the highlights of every move you made. If you make, it an, if you make an error, there's a striped man on the field that calls you out by number for your error. Most of you will never touch the football. And all of you football players will get your bell rung multiple times during that game. And yet, and yet, if your team wins, almost all of that will be forgotten or overlooked because the bigger picture matters. You succeeded. And it relativizes all the hardships that you've just faced because you've won. And that's what matters. That's how Paul views life. Paul's not just this person who embodies a resilient spirit. Paul's not just a model follower of Jesus Christ. He's also a tremendous leader. He understands that a chief job of a leader is to define reality and to frame our response. It's to see the circumstances of reality, and then to put them in light of the bigger picture. 
A leader helps us see what we will not see without a new way of looking. And that's what Paul does here, guided by Christ. He uses actually a wordplay in the Greek language to speak in ways that we would say when an obstacle becomes an opportunity. He says what seems like a hindrance is actually an advance. The gospel runs. My circumstances are not an obstacle, but an opportunity. They're not a dead end, but a doorway, Paul says. And he goes on to highlight what he means. He shares here two ways in which the gospel is advancing. We see them in verses 13 and 14. Verse 13 to start, skeptics heard Paul's gospel witness and allegiance to Christ. Now, this shouldn't surprise us because if we know the story of Paul in the city of Philippi, we know that he was imprisoned already. Paul knew something about prisons in different cities. The story in Acts 16 is of Paul and Silas bearing witness to Jesus Christ, getting thrown into prison, mistreated, arrested on wild charges based upon things that people perceived. It was a, it was a bad day, a day full of legal and social injustice. Paul and Silas are tied down and they end up singing in their jail cell. And at midnight, his fellow Prisoners and the jailer got a concert. In other words, everyone in the vicinity of Paul would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you tied him down, he would talk you up. If you stopped him in his tracks, he would pierce you in your heart. If you arrested him because of Jesus, he would tell you the message of Jesus. No circumstances, no prison would slow Paul down. No wonder. When Paul was in prison in Rome, the same thing would happen. Everyone around him was going to hear about the good news. And in Rome, the audience wasn't just the jailer or the fellow prisoners like in Philippi. The audience was the Praetorian Guard. The audience was the Green Berets, the, the Navy SEALs, the secret service of the Roman Empire. All of them were going to hear about Jesus. The reason Paul was there in their custody, Jesus Christ. Paul's message to the Philippians and to us is clear. Sometimes it's in the most unlikely of places, in the most painful, uncomfortable of circumstances, where the most unlikely of people come in contact with believers and hear the gospel. Think of our day. Accomplished surgeons who at the bedside of gravely ill patients hear the gospel. Leading politicians who hear from their young subordinates the gospel. Business executives who unsuspecting hear the gospel from their waiters and waitresses. Tenured professors at the university who hear the gospel from their first year students. Never think that God can't place you in a spot of his choosing, a spot maybe of discomfort and pain that you don't like so that you can be a gospel witness. And it's always been like this. Matt Harmon, a professor who will be with us in a few weeks, wrote, throughout the history of the church, God has advanced the gospel by placing his people in circumstances and locations they could not reach by themselves so that those beyond the apparent reach of the gospel might hear the good news and believe. God has his ways, and he will put his people there. Do you believe that? 
The question is whether you and I are ready and willing to be placed where God wants us. Even in jail, like Paul. There's a second way in which the gospel advances. Look at verse 14. Believers gain courage through Paul to speak the gospel with confidence. Wearsby again wrote, Paul's chains not only gave contact with the lost, but they also gave courage to the saved. Believers who witnessed Paul or heard about Paul were emboldened to speak the gospel where they were. They realized that if Paul was courageous to speak to his captives, if Paul wasn't silenced by his circumstances, then they wouldn't be either. And it gave them more confidence. They would proclaim without fear, it says in verse 14. And this theme of the unbound nature of the gospel, the unchained nature of the gospel runs throughout the New Testament. No matter how hard people try, no matter how hard authorities try, no matter how hard spiritual forces try, the gospel will not, cannot be kept down. Though the messenger may be bound in chains, Paul exhibit A, the message cannot be bound. Caesar's chains, Hansen writes, release the power of the gospel of Christ. And Paul knew something about this. He wrote elsewhere toward the end of his life in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9, about my gospel for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. See, courage breeds more courage. Courage snowballs. When one person is willing to risk opposition, to, to risk persecution, and to speak anyway, courage snowballs. Others are encouraged. They are emboldened. They're willing to stand up and speak because they realize they're not alone. And it's a well-documented reality of the human psyche that when we realize we're not the only ones, that someone has gone before, that we're were people of courage to follow in their footsteps. There are lots of historical examples. Let me name a few. I think of the courage of Martin Luther 500 years ago. Luther said, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of scriptures or clear reason, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me, God. He risked his life to say that. And others then did too. I think much closer to our day, a number of decades ago, Rosa Parks, who refused to give up her bus seat just because of the color of her skin, and untold numbers of people of all kinds of skin colors were willing to have courage to do the same. I think just in recent weeks of Afghan women who are willing to stand up and protest for the dignity and the equality of women at great risk to their lives because they understand the value that they and others have. Maybe the most iconic image in my mind, occurred a week after I graduated from high school. It was in the city of Beijing, China, and the place was Tiananmen Square. Resisting Communist Party crackdowns on pro-reform, pro-democracy student protests, hundreds of thousands of people came into the city of Beijing, and Chinese leaders responded by calling in all kinds of military reinforcements attempting to suppress them. And one man stood in front of a row of tanks with courage. You remember it? 
but far more than those examples of individual incredible courage for rights, for dignity, for freedoms, are the examples of people who stood for the gospel of Jesus Christ, come what may. You know the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel's time, who said, regardless of what you command and regardless of what you will do to us, we will not, for God alone deserves our worship. Think of Peter and John shortly after Pentecost, who said, we must obey God rather than men. We see the stories of believers throughout the New Testament and beyond who had the courage to suffer for the gospel. I think of the story in Acts, the, the, the history of the early church. Stephen was stoned in Acts chapter 6 and 7, and, and his opponents, who wanted to keep him and those in this Jesus following down, thought they had the upper hand. Acts chapter 8 verse 1 reads, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Here it is, verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. They may have been hightailing and out of there. They may have been running for their lives, but they were talking as they ran. The gospel was going to be heard wherever they went. Same thing was true for Paul in prison in Rome. Same thing was likely true for the Philippians when they heard about Paul's courage. Paul believed in the value of religious liberty, religious freedom. Sometimes Paul actually stood up and demanded it. It was rightfully his. But Paul also knew that religious freedom wouldn't always be available or accessible. And he was confident enough in the Lord Jesus Christ that it wasn't essential to his witness. We need that perspective. Too often, we in our country think that religious freedom is essential to the spread of the gospel, but it's not. Sometimes it is the oppression of believers, which is the very vehicle that God uses to spread the gospel. Do you believe that? Look at history. Make no mistake, I'm grateful for the religious freedom that we have in this country, enshrined in our Constitution, and that we still largely enjoy today. I, I'm thankful for institutions like ADF, Alliance Defending Freedom, or the Beckett Fund and others that work to protect the freedoms that we should have in this country. But sometimes, religious freedom can actually foster complacency in us. Sometimes the blessings we enjoy from God actually prevent us from expressing the gospel. Pastor Jonathan said this week, if our world rises and falls on our experience of religious liberty, it betrays the fact that our hopes are hung on the wrong thing. Exactly right. Because our hope is in the power of the gospel and the courage that the Spirit of God gives to us. And our thanks is due to people like Paul, whose boldness is contagious for us. Are you like Paul? The central message in this whole long section is probably found in these first three verses, that the gospel advances in spite of opposition, that it can spread through difficult circumstances, and that it can embolden believers to speak wherever they are. But all the rest of the verses are also vital because they show us something about Paul's heart. 
See, it's not only the witness of Paul that we can learn from, it's also his motives. Second point in your outline, the wonderful realities of gospel power foster changed perspectives. We see that. First, in verses 15 to 18, Paul celebrated the fruitfulness of gospel witness. Paul Paul stops at this point as he's writing the letter and steps back to assess the progress of the gospel. And he highlights two groups of gospel proclaimers. Actually, he contrasts two groups here. The admirable ones, like Paul, they preach the gospel out of goodwill. Look at it there. Their intentions are marked by sincerity. Their commitment is steadfast. Their sacrifice is apparent. Their motive is love, verse 16. Paul is an example with his teammates of what it means to be an ambassador of reconciliation for Christ. And he calls the Philippians and he calls us to the same. Paul recognizes that God sometimes strategically places us in uncomfortable, unwanted places for the advance of his gospel. That's one group of gospel proclaimers, and Paul's exhibit A for that. He calls us to emulate him. But there's another group. Paul describes them, look there, as full of envy and rivalry. We're going to see those words later in the letter. People attached to their own reputation and desires, even if they're proclaiming the gospel. People full of selfish ambition, who who want others to think that they're the spiritual gurus, that they're the prophetic voices, that they're the evangelistic champions. They preach Christ, Paul says. He makes that clear here. Many of those people may be believers, some even leaders, but their motives are mixed at best and self-serving at worst. And in Paul's case, they were actively trying to undermine Paul's reputation as they preached the gospel. Tell me that didn't hurt Paul. That didn't disappoint Paul. Let me ask you, are there churches out there which are motivated by monetary gain, by personal fame, and yet they're proclaiming the gospel? Yes, there are. There are, unfortunately, too many Christian ministries that exist that are more concerned with their fame or their finances or their reputations than they actually are the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me go further. Are there Christian leaders out there pastors, teachers, speakers, authors who are more motivated by personal gain, by personal fame, who are still proclaiming the gospel. Yes, there are. And, And their flawed character usually catches up with them in due time. Just this past week, our pastors were sitting around and we thought about the last 10 years in evangelical Christianity in the United States. People who had thriving ministries and yet those ministries were undermined by the selfish motives and methods and sometimes catastrophic personal choices of those leaders. It's not just out there. Even in our own fellowship of churches, even in our own church, In the past 10 years and in decades before that, there were examples of leaders who were faithful to the gospel message, but whose motives, whose whose methods were full of envy and rivalry and selfish ambition. People who maligned other leaders, who made untrue accusations, who split churches, who fueled divisions. So, So what Paul's speaking about is also a 21st century reality. 
And it's always been a reality, a painful one in the church of Jesus Christ. And those motives and those, those methods are wrong and they will be judged by God. The, the pastoral epistles, Titus, 1 and 2 Timothy make that clear. Character matters. The end does not justify the means. But Paul is amazingly, unexpectedly at peace with the reality of mixed motive ministry leaders. Why? Because the bigger picture is the gospel advance. It's almost as if Paul is saying, yeah, I know that those people are out there, but let's not worry about those people. Don't let that distract you from the purpose of the gospel. Hansen writes, as long as the focus is kept on Christ, there will be unity in the church. As soon as the focus shifts to interpersonal competition and conflict, unity will be destroyed. That's so important in a church. That's so important in church leaders. Who's the focus? Is it Jesus or is it me? A lack of unity, as Paul knows and declares in this letter, can be toxic in gospel witness. You might even sit here and read this and say, I think Paul's a little too unbothered by these people and their bad motives. I think Paul should be more upset. I think Paul should be like some of Jesus' disciples in the Gospels who said to Jesus, just, just call down fire from heaven, Jesus. Just nuke them, God. Come on. But he wasn't. Not because he didn't see the problems. He just named them. But because Paul would not let the problems of motives and methods paralyze him from getting on with the mission of the gospel. To, to change what we said a few weeks ago, the motives of others shouldn't pause the mission we're on. And that's a good thing for us, because if we waited around until you all had and I had pure motives, we'd still be waiting. It's not that Paul's too heavenly-minded to be in touch with reality. It's not that Paul just sees things through rose-tinted glasses. He sees, rather, everything in light of the bigger picture. Paul's a man of a single passion, Christ and the gospel. Everything is to be seen and done in light of Christ. Look at what he says in verse 18. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Joy in the gospel. Can you say that? Whatever is happening to me, even the unfair things, joy in the gospel. The important thing is Christ. Finally, Paul embraced the faithfulness of gospel living, verses 19 and following. Because for Paul, joy wasn't just a past record. It wasn't just a present reality. It was a future anticipation. I will continue to rejoice, verse 19. I'm confident that the Lord knows what he's doing in their lives, in their situations, and in mine. And so Paul turns again to his own circumstances in these final verses and listen, listen to his confidence in the Lord. I know that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. Confidence, contentment, courage. This was a Paul who was sure of the gospel and of the one who gave it. He had the Spirit of God living in him, as every believer does. He had the prayers of the saints for him, as every believer should. Paul was not alone. Paul knew that he was working in concert with the family of God, the Spirit of God, 
and the Son of God. He had no reason to fear. He was in good hands. Reminds me of what Job said uh, many years before Paul, when he had been afflicted with things that God had allowed and said this in Job 13, 15, though he, God will slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance. It's almost as if Paul was echoing Job. The only variable for Paul would, was whether he would have the courage to, to show it. Would he hold fast to the person of Jesus and to the message of the gospel? New Testament scholar Hansen writes, as shameful as imprisonment and execution were in the Roman world, that was not Paul's concern. Listen to that. As bad as being in prison or getting executed would be not a big deal to Paul. He would be ashamed if he did or said anything that was not consistent with the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Paul wasn't worried about his circumstances. He was worried about his faithfulness to Jesus. Can you say that? Paul begins here then with some self-talk, a dialogue about his future and God's plans in his life. If, if ever we had a window into how Paul was thinking about his own life, here it is. Pay attention. Paul begins with this overarching commitment that now as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. I want to live well for Christ. I want to die well for Christ. In many ways, that's the calling of our church and our leaders, to help people live well for Christ and die well for Christ. Paul then moves into a section of very transparent self-reflection. He's thinking out loud. Here's the most famous verse. You've heard of it, verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul says either option is great. You know, for us, it's a cruise or a beach house, a steak dinner or seafood. A call from a loved one or a card from a loved one? Ah, they're both great. Paul says they're both a win. If I live, then I have the security and the guidance of Jesus Christ. If I die, then I'm in the presence of Christ and I'm no longer in this fallen world. Both are acceptable. Paul says, I prefer the second. Look at the end of verse 23. Not just something he felt at the moment, but something that was a settled conviction in his heart. He wrote elsewhere. 2 Corinthians 5.8, we're confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him whether we are at home in the body or away from it. It's as if Paul was talking to the writer of 2 Corinthians. Oh yeah, that was him too. Having said that, Paul returns to thinking in terms of the gospel motivated by mission. Look at 22. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. The very thing that Paul's celebrating, the advance of the gospel, is going to be his future experience. It's going to be his delight if God leaves him physically in the body on this earth. His life continues with gospel purpose. And he'll keep saying, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Option A, option B, they both could be great. I've had some situations in life, including in recent weeks, which seemed similar. You know, when you have two bad options in life, it's disillusioning. But when you have two good options in life, it's wonderful. But it doesn't make it easy. Because if the gospel and our 
if our one life for Jesus is taken seriously, we really want to choose the best route, don't we? And often, we don't know which one that is. So we say like Paul, what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. Can you relate to that? Have you ever faced a dilemma in which both options had tremendous benefits, but you couldn't have them both? And you felt hemmed in. You felt between that proverbial rock and a hard place. That, that's Paul here. They can torture me and they can kill me. Then I'm with Christ. I win. They can release me and I go on in the joy and suffering for the gospel. I win. I win either way. What shall I choose? Later, Paul would say what he could have said here. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there's in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. But that was not God's will for Paul right now. So he concludes this, verse 23. I desire and depart to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. What, what tips the scales in Paul's mind is not what was convenient or desirable to him, but what was needed for the gospel of Jesus Christ and those who served with him. This is the core of other-centered thinking. What do they need? The beginning of chapter 2, Paul goes into detail about thinking like that. Then he describes Jesus Christ as the perfect example who gave up, who set aside what would have been comfortable to him for the good of others, namely us. And Paul chooses that too. Verse 25, convinced of this. I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith so that through my being with you again, your boasting in Jesus Christ will abound on account of me. By God's grace, my presence with you will fuel your joy and love for Christ in the gospel. You will exult in Christ. So I will gladly stay and suffer because it's for your good. Can you say that? Can you say that as you serve people and suffer and sacrifice? It's not about me. It's about them. Let me ask particularly those of you who are experiencing sickness or physical ailments, or maybe you just recognize that you're aging. Good number of you who are maybe in the fourth quarter of life. Have you said to God, I want to continue living in service to others for the sake of Christ. I do not want to retire God from this life or from your mission. I want my life to count to my dying breath. I want to serve you and I want to serve them. In that same gathering, our pastors a few days ago listed off a whole slew of older people in our church who have that mindset and are serving so, so well. If that's you, thank you. You are mentors and examples to us. To the rest of us, I ask, do other people in this church see your heartfelt desire to help them grow in Christ? Are there tangible ways in which they see you investing in the well-being of others?
Because Paul's motto was clear, if we're here, we're meant to be on mission. We're meant to be on mission. Notice what Paul didn't say, what he didn't mean, what he didn't endorse. Paul did not say that this life is so wretched and so worthless that it would be better to die in order to escape its endless toil and drudgery. Paul didn't say, God, I've had enough of this world. Get me out of here. He didn't list all the physical ailments and the emotional turmoil that he surely would have to endure if he continued to live. Paul didn't give his laundry list of all the ways life is hard for me. Just the opposite. Paul was totally confident that this life, this physical life, meant fruitful labor. And so he was willing to delay crossing the finish line for the good, the well-being of others, and the gospel. Gospel advance came first. The old question of the Heidelberg Catechism, first question, what is your only comfort in life and death? The answer, Paul could have said this, that I'm not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what Paul could say. He lived to the praise and glory of Christ, even in especially the troubles and circumstances of life. See, Paul knew the presence of opposition invites the privilege, privilege of opportunity. Gospel opportunity, gospel advance, gospel living, gospel dying, the joy of knowing Jesus Christ. Is that your joy, too. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the example of Paul and for his wholehearted commitment to the bigger picture, not his own comfort or preference. Thank you for the perfect example of Jesus Christ who set aside what was rightfully his so that he could meet our deepest needs. And I pray that you would help each one of us who knows you, who's been saved by you, Jesus, to be willing, ready to say to you, not my life, but yours through me, Jesus. And whatever you need from me, wherever you place me, in whatever circumstances I am, I want to live well for you until my dying breath. Lord, do that in me. Do that in us. Do that in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.